All right, good morning, guys. Let's try it again. Good morning, guys. Oh, much better. All right, grab your Bibles. We're going over to Philippians chapter 4. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here, and we're continuing our sermon series called Unshaken. And uh, we're going to Philippians 4. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the, the uh, chair in, fl- in front of you. And in our Bibles, we're going over to page 982. 982, we're going to Philippians 4. While you're flipping over there, we had another, I don't know, rough week, man. Seems like we have a lot of rough weeks. Um, but I want to pause. And uh, um, this week, um, right up the street from my old house down in South County, um, a... Uh, a hero was killed. Uh, Blake Snyder was a police officer, and um, many of you knew him. He was from this community. Um, he was uh, responding to a disturbance call early in the morning. Um, as soon as he climbed out of his car, he was shot and killed. He leaves behind a young widow and a two-year-old child. And uh, and I know that when this happens, obviously it's great tragedy for the family. It's a it's a shockwave through the entire law enforcement community, honestly, as a reminder that these guys are going into places we don't want to go and doing things we don't want to do and risking their lives in ways that uh, are honorable. And, uh, and so um, I want to remember Blake and his family and pray for them, but I also have to mention and, and want to pray for uh, what's going on in Haiti. Uh, I know many of you have been tracking the, uh, the storm, Matthew, as it's been going through, the death toll in Haiti now is almost 900 people. Uh, it is phenomenal, the amount of suffering and, and loss of life in that community. And uh, we have some church partners on the ground there that um, are, are actively working toward um, rebuilding. We have one of our own, uh, Jessica Ambule, who flew over there literally uh, right after the storm, carrying relief supplies and um, just trying to to bring um, uh, be part of, of of helping and so um, as we need to do when we find ourselves powerless in the face of overpowering uh, situations, the best thing we can do is is lament and, and so why don't we just come into the presence of god let 's pray um, for the the people that are suffering and for our own hearts. Father, we thank you that you are um, a great storyteller, and, and, and that you have told us that even when we are facing situations of absolute sadness and suffering that seems so senseless, that you are a God who will retell the story, that the brokenness and the sadness we see now is not the final word. We thank you that you redeem and restore. We thank you that you stepped into our hurt, identified with our brokenness. You are not a distant and cold God. You know the pain. So we pray, Lord, that as you know the pain, you also can bring the comfort in ways that none of us can. So we pray for um, the Snyder family. We pray, Lord, for this widow, for this child. We pray for their extended family, their community, and, and really the entire um, officer of, uh, of community of, of enforcement officers that are feeling the shockwaves of this. Lord, that you would bring comfort, that you would move people to generosity, 
that this family might be cared for financially through, through the outpouring of gifts, that you would provide generosity and relationship, that there would be people around them loving them and supporting them and encouraging them in their sorrow. And spirit, that you'll do what no person can do. That you'll draw near to their hearts in a unique and powerful way that communicates a supernatural peace in the midst of ununderstandable sorrow. I pray, Lord, for those in Haiti uh, that are on the ground seeking to bring um, reconstruction, seeking to bring aid, seeking to bring comfort. Pray for their safety. We pray, Lord, uh, again, for an outpouring of generosity to aid in this great time of need. Pray, Lord, for uh, those people that are on the ground that, that, Lord, you will open up opportunities for them to serve, that, that they will serve in effective and powerful ways, that they'll be able to share your love in very practical ways, even as they share your love um, simply through the outpouring of your grace in their lives. Lord, meet this community in their suffering. We lift it up to you because we don't have anything else to do, but man, we sure thank you that you're big enough and powerful enough and wise enough to handle both our sorrow and theirs. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys. Uh, Philippians chapter 4. We are continuing our, our Unshaken series. Uh, this morning, I am expanding our text by two verses. I know some of you are going to be quite surprised and very happy with this. We're going to mix it up a little bit. We're going to start reading in verse 2 this morning. So join me in verse 2 of chapter 4. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The word of the Lord. All right, I have a, a confession to make at the outset here. Um, I'm afraid of heights. Anybody else? I have a weird fascination <laughs> with heights because I also love adrenaline. And so what that means is I'm both intrigued and terrified I'm the guy that when I stay in a skyscraper, I find the floor-to-ceiling windows, and I put my toes right up against the edge of my nose, and I want to get that sense of, of being high if, if I'm uh, like a, you know, top of a building and there's a railing, I'm the guy hanging over because I just want to kind of get that rush. I'm also the guy, though, when I'm by an edge that doesn't have a railing that crawls up to it right? Because as I get closer to the edge, I feel this gravitational pull. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a wind at my back that's just going to throw me over. And, uh, and so there's always this battle in my soul between an intrigue for the, for the adrenaline and a fear of the risk. Well, last summer, I was invited by a good friend to go on a hike in Colorado. Uh, he's like, hey, man, we're going to go climb a 14er. You want to go along? And I was like, hey, I'm ready for a break, and that sounds like fun. Um, 
I'm not really in shape. I mean, unless you count round as a shape. So I had, I had no idea what I was getting into. You know, I, I literally, I'm not even kidding, literally went and got on the stair stepper three times um, before I went on the hike uh, to, to help prepare myself. I learned later that we were actually going to climb uh, Mount Blanca in Colorado. Mount Blanca is um, the sixth tallest 14er in the United States. And um, it is a two-day, 20-mile round-trip hike that requires an overnight. So you have to carry in all your supplies. You carry everything on your back, your clothing, your food, your water. Um, and and uh, when you start, it's 80 degrees. And when you finish, it's freezing, right, because of the altitude. And so you have to bring layers. And I had no idea what I was getting into. So the climb started at 8,000 feet above sea level. And... Um, you climb 6,000 feet of elevation, you end at 14,345, and then you turn around and come back down. That's the hike. So just to give you reference, airplanes turn off their fastened seatbelt signs at 10,000 feet above sea level. So day one, I did surprisingly well. I mean, I kind of surprised myself. I was chugging along. I had taken some, some um, uh, altitude sickness medicine, which I had never done before, but somebody recommended it. It was a huge help, right, because I'm not used to the altitude and um, I actually did pretty well. I made it to Lake Como, which is about six miles into the hike, um, and at about 10,000, 10,500 feet. We, we got there, we, we fished, we caught trout for dinner, you know, we, we set up our tents, and, and um, we slept, and, and we got up super early for day two, right? We began the hike with the stars overhead. It was incredibly beautiful. And, um, and so you start day two with, with all this I don't know, there's fatigue, but there's excitement, right? And then uh, you hike. <laughs> and then the closer you get to the top, the steeper it gets. And in fact, the last couple of miles are less like a hike and more like a scramble over loose rocks and stones. It's really more climbing. It's not super technical. You don't need any special equipment, but um, it is, um, you, are, you are in your hands and your feet. The final half mile takes you straight up a ridgeline. And when I got there, um, I was physically exhausted. I had been hiking for two days straight, carrying everything on my back. I was physically exhausted, and I was honestly afraid. Um, there's not very often, I mean, that doesn't, I mean, it was kind of a unique sensation. I was like, I'm, I'm literally afraid. On one side was about a five or 600 foot drop, very, very steep over loose rocks. And on the other side was a 2,000 foot sheer drop, like just straight down. And when you moved through the shadows, there was ice and snow because you were up in the elevation. So any moisture that came down would freeze if it wasn't in, in the sunlight. And um, it, was, it was pretty hairy. Um, and I remember thinking more than once, in fact, uh, it was pretty clear, I think I, I, I could stop here and turn back. <laughs> and I would be okay, right? I'm, I'm already over 13,000 feet. Like, this was not an ambition of my life. This was not on my bucket list. I never thought, I need to climb a 14er to be whole and complete, right? That wasn't, that wasn't on my list, right? I'm thinking, okay, a 13er is a thing, right? People climb 13ers, and, and so just because it's not a 14,000-foot summit, I'm, I'm already there. Every step at that point was an act of determination and will, and um, there wasn't a lot of joy in that part, um, but I did actually make it to the top. The final about 45 feet was just hairy, man. I mean, you're just walking literally right along an edge. It's about, I don't know, two feet wide, and it is just sheer drops on both sides. And, and, and you get up to the top, 
and, uh, and man, the mountaintop experience. You hear people use that phrase, right? It was a mountaintop experience. I now know what that means, right? I got up there, and literally, I just felt refreshed. I felt, I sat down, I ate, you know, I was walking up to the edge going, hey, look down there, that's where I was. And, you know, you just, I'm like comfortable. And, and even coming down from the summit, man, I'm just like walking right along the ridge, jumping from rock to rock. Um, you know, I don't know, maybe I was a little bit high on the, on the Colorado air. There's a lot of other things in the air out there. Um, but I was just kind of coming on down and, and it wasn't until I was about a mile down with nine miles left that the exhaustion returned, and at that point it was overwhelmingly painful um, because I still had nine miles of very, very steep downhill to navigate, and uh, that is a whole other story, and it was not fun. So I had a lot of time to think about this sermon series. That's where all that goes. Uh, I had a lot of time to think about this sermon series. You guys know how mountains are formed? Most mountains are formed through tectonic pressure. So you have two plates, subterranean plates of earth that are pressing against each other, and they have nowhere to go, right? And so they just crush the rock in between and push their way up. And in fact, most mountains, if they're, if they're active, they continue to grow every year. They're actually, they're not just static. They're, they're continuing to, to get taller. And, um, and I thought, you know, they, they literally take, they make mountains out of molehills. That's what they do. And that's a lot like our culture right now, right? There are forces on the right, and there are forces on the left, and they are pressing toward each other. They're not running from each other. They're pressing toward each other. The goal they're trying to get to is on the other side. And so they're pressing together, and it's creating this incredible tension. But instead of breaking rocks, it's breaking our hearts. We're in the middle of all of that pressure. We're in the middle of all of that tension. And, and, and as far as I can tell, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's worse than it's ever been. There's so much yelling and so little communication and so much mistrust and, and so much misunderstanding. And it's not helped by the fact that we live in a world of selective news sources, right? We have so many options when it comes to news. And, and people are like, yeah, I wish, man, I wish we could just, I wish we'd have unbiased news sources. No, you don't. You just want news sources that agree with your bias. That's really what you mean. You think it's unbiased when it agrees with you. That's really what it means because an unbiased news source just gives you the facts. As soon as they start saying anything about the facts, that reveals a bias, and so what we've done is we have the ability to customize the information we get so that it confirms and builds our preconceived biases. In fact, there's this phenomenon now called red feed, blue feed, and that's your, news, news, uh, your Facebook news feed, right? If you look, like my, my Republican friends and my Democrat friends, their news feeds report the same exact events, but they say completely different things about them. They're like two completely different experiences. And so you just have reinforced to you continually the bias you already have. And you keep, you keep, you're able to alienate those sources of information that are threatening to you or challenge you or uncomfortable for you, right? You can unfriend people. You can unfollow news sources. You can, you can pick and choose what's coming in. And what's happening is we now have an increased level of outrage and frustration with people who think differently than we do. It's actually reducing our ability to interact with people who come from a different perspective. We, we demand and even expect to have a world that conforms with our biases. You guys, if we're going to have any stability and any security in this culture, in this world, we're going to have to learn how to deal with conflict. We're going to have to learn how to deal with conflict in a way that reduces tension and increases clarity. We're going to have to learn how to deal with conflict 
in a way that is grounded and rooted in grace and, and, and moves toward unity. All right, so our passage this morning um, deals with a, a pair that are in conflict, right? The passage begins with Paul calling out two women by name, Iodia and, and Syntyche. How do you like that, man? Uh, this guy writes a letter to, to the Philippians, and it's this beautiful letter. It's so full of truth and transcendent um, uh, insight. And then at the end, he's like, hey, and by the way, you over there and you over there, knock it off, right? Names them by name, right? And uh, we don't know exactly what they were fighting about. We do know they were both believers, right? We, they're both followers of Jesus. They had worked together in the past. They were, they were fellow co-workers with Paul. They were part of the Christian community. And we're not told what their conflict was. But we might be able to get a little bit of help from the Greek here. If we look at the original Greek, I think we can get a hint, right? So, so the name Yodia in Greek means make America great again. <laughs> and the name Syntyche in Greek means I'm with her. All right, not really. I'm making that up. Uh, We have no idea, no idea what their conflict was about. And I think this is actually part of God's gift to us in this passage (laughs) because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You'll always have conflict. It doesn't matter what it's about. You'll always have conflict. If you have relationships, you'll have conflict, right? So we don't know what they were fighting about. In fact, Paul doesn't tell us who was right and who was wrong because that doesn't matter. He doesn't give advice on how to find a winner. He doesn't give advice even on how to get rid of the conflict. What he tells us instead is how to find peace in the middle of conflict. And he commands them and us to fight for unity in the midst of disagreement. It's incredibly timely for us today, especially in a church like ours. Sitting here today, maybe right next to you, is somebody who is on the complete opposite side of the political spectrum from you. Believe it or not, there are people here that that want to make America great again, and there are people here who are saying, when was America ever great? There there are people here that that are blue state, people here that are red state, people here that that are all for for one side, and people here that are sold out for the other. You have boomers, you have millennials, you have reds, you have blues. How in the world are we, as a community, supposed to navigate those tensions? How are we, as a community, supposed to model for the broader community how the gospel informs how we do community and how we relate to one another? That's what we're going to be unpacking. So first of all, the first step is to take responsibility for your own heart. In uh, verse 2, when Paul addresses Iodia and Syntyche, it's really interesting. He says, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche. He repeats the verb, which is... I don't know, kind of a waste of words, right? He could just say, hey, I I entreat you guys. Hey, I appeal to both of you. But he doesn't. He says, I entreat Iodia, and I entreat Syntyche. Because I think it's a way of him basically saying, look, I'm talking to each one of you individually. He puts the burden of the solution on each one, regardless of how the other responds. Iodia can be like, hey, man, if, if she would just stop posting misrepresentations about my candidate." If she would just stop attacking things that I find valuable, and Syntyche's over here like, like, why don't you just go away? You're annoying. You say things I don't like, and you make comments on my threads that I don't want to read, and man, just go away. And they're both like, hey, if you would just stop being so unreasonable, then we could solve this thing. If you could stop being so unreasonable, then we could solve this thing. And what Paul is saying is, 
the solution's not out there. The beginning of the solution's in here, right? Let's start here. Whether you're in conflict on Facebook or in your workplace or in your dorms, in your friendships or in your home, listen to me, the solution doesn't come from fixing the other person. It's not where it starts. The solution doesn't come from demanding change and looking at them and saying, if you would just... If you would just be, if you would just change, if, if you would just stop this, or if you would just start that, the solution doesn't come from attacking them or silencing them. The solution has to come from you owning your own words, your own attitudes, your own feelings, taking responsibility for your words and even your thoughts, and stop blaming the other. See, when we play the blame game, we're the losers. When we play the blame game, it's all his fault, it's all her fault, we always lose. So think about it like when my kids were little. My kids used to get in fights. It happens. And, and, and every time it would happen, somebody would do something, and something would do something in return, and then they would say something, and then they would say something in return. And dad is always called upon to step into the middle and be the great arbiter of all things, right? And so when I step in and I take my daughter and I'm like, hey, I need you to apologize. You need to take responsibility for your actions. You need to take responsibility for your words. My child was always like, absolutely, Father. I love you because you're the best. And I love my sister. And I will do that thing. Right? (laughs) No. (laughs) No. I'm like, hey, you need to take responsibility for yourself. Every time, first two words, but she, but she, she did this, she took that, she said this. No, 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 stick with me, stick with me, right? right? You need to take responsibility for your actions, but, but, but he, there's a he here too, he, no, 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 no. So eventually I have to take my daughter's hand, head in my hands and, and just gently keep her from swiveling and looking at everybody else, just look at me. You're responsible for what you did. You're responsible for your words. You're responsible for your choices. I'll talk to them about their choices. I'm not going to talk to you about their choices. I'll talk to them about them, but I'm talking to you about you. You need to take responsibility for you. You guys, that's where it starts. We need to stop justifying our bad choices by other people's bad behavior. It begins with us recognizing that I can't solve a problem by changing others. If I really want to get past conflict, if I really want to find peace in conflict, if I really want to experience joy in conflict, if I really want to have my relationships thrive, I need to recognize that it begins with me. So Paul is, in a sense, taking each one of us and holding our faces and exhorting us. So what's he exhorting us to do? Well, the end of the verse, right? I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. To agree in the Lord. What that basically means is you need to keep the most important things first. You're going to fight about a lot of things. You're going to have conflict about a lot of things. But let's keep the most important things the most important, right? That means that you relate to each other through the grace you've received, not through the conflict you're experiencing. You need to see people through the grace you've received, not through the offense you've received. You need to agree in the Lord. 
You need to approach people through the gospel, not through the fight. See, this becomes the meeting place of agreement in a conflict. When you have two people who are believers, and it works with unbelievers too, but it's more effective, and the context here is about believers, you begin by creating this space in which you don't make the conflict itself the centerpiece. You make the grace you've received the centerpiece. You know why? Because when you come together, you're both co-heirs of the kingdom of God. You're both sinners who have become trophies of grace purely by the work of Christ because He died for you and rose again for you. You didn't earn that. You didn't do anything spectacular. He did. Now you're just covered in His glory, and so are they, right? So there's this meeting place in which you come together. You're both redeemed, and and you both have been given the promise of restoration. You have this, this place in the gospel of commonality. The gospel becomes the place of agreement. And in that place, you have more to pull you together than you have to drive you apart. You both have a a common Savior. You both had a debt you couldn't pay, a monumental cosmic debt that was paid by the same deliverer. You're both indebted to the same person. You're both honored by the same person. You both have a future with the same person. Do you see how this is so much greater? You both have a common citizenship and a greater kingdom. You have way more that pulls you together than you have that drives you apart. The gospel becomes the meeting place of agreement, but it also becomes the power of agreement. Think about it. One of the reasons that we don't have peace with people is because we just don't want to. We don't have peace with people because they hurt us. And then we start telling this story about our woundedness and their idiocy. And in that story, we feel completely self-justified in not liking them and keeping them alienated and in keeping them in this place of, of hostility, right? So, so it, how do we overcome that? How do we deal with this natural heart need to, to, uh, to just pull away or to attack? See, the gospel isn't just the place of agreement. It's the power of community. It's what pulls us together around a common experience of grace even when we don't want to go. So let me ask you something. When you're tired of that person that you're in conflict with, whether it's on Facebook or in your workplace or in your home, and you're just sick of them, like they stepped on your last nerve 10 steps ago, and you found new ones that you didn't want to find, right? I mean, what do you do when when you're with this person? You're like, I'm just done with you. You know what the problem is? You're going to say the problem's with them, but it's not. The problem's with you. If you've gotten so tired of them, you're ready to write them off, it's because you've grown distant from grace. It's because you've grown distant from the great need that was met by the great Savior. A God who loved you when you were unlovable. A God who paid a debt for you that you couldn't pay. A God who stepped into your rebellion even as you were acting in rebellion to redeem you from it and deliver you from the penalty of your cosmic treason against a holy God. You've grown distant from grace. And what ends up happening is you stop seeing people through the lens of grace. You start seeing them through the lens of their offense. See, to agree with the Lord means to first recenter ourselves on the Lord. Not them, us. 
recenter ourselves on our experience of grace, like sit in the gospel long enough that our hearts once again grow grateful. Like genuinely grateful, not just giving thanks, but genuinely grateful. Like like our hearts are warmed once again to to the generosity of God. And when that generosity is appreciated in our hearts through our gratitude, it reawakens within us a relational generosity toward others and their weakness. See, it doesn't mean that that you agree with the people that you disagree with. It it doesn't mean that they're right and you're wrong. It doesn't mean that, that they were okay in hurting you and that you need to continue to allow them to hurt you. But it does mean that you see them like Jesus sees them. You see them as God does. You see them as people in need of grace. Sometimes this means you're going to see their hidden glory. Like in the middle of a conflict, as, as, you're, as you're yearning for them and, 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 and recentering yourself on the gospel and being awakened to the grace of God that you've received and, and you see in them, even in the midst of the, go- in the conflict, like there's something struggling you to come out that's actually beautiful. And you become the voice of grace in the middle of a conflict to help them grow into the grace that is in front of them. Something you would completely miss if all you're focusing on is the offense. If all you're focusing on is your hurt and your woundedness, you completely miss your opportunity to become a vehicle of grace in the life of the person you're having conflict with. But sometimes it's going to be the opposite, right? Sometimes they're not going to be walking in grace. Sometimes they're not going to respond. Sometimes you're not going to see their glory. You're going to see their shame. You're going to see their pride. You're going to see their weakness that is driving their behavior. But when you're seeing them through the lens of grace, instead of that puffing you up in pride, it's going to free you to pity. Because you're going to see lost and broken people hurting themselves. Lost and broken people desperately in need of grace, hurting people out of their pride and out of their fear and out of their own hurt. And they're going to yearn for them to experience grace as well. See, when we see people through the lens of grace, it frees us from being locked into the lens of our hurt. When we see people through the lens of our hurt, we magnify our pain. We lock ourselves into our own pride and self-pity. We terminate growth in the relationship and we terminate our own experience of grace. We're called to something better. If we're going to experience unity in the midst of conflict, we need to learn how to center ourselves on grace, and we need to be a community that fights for this. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Pursuit of God, has an incredible illustration. I've referenced it before. He says this, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but by, the, but by another standard, to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be if they were to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and strive for closer fellowship. So what I'm saying is, in the midst of conflict, you need to stop focusing on the conflict. In the midst of conflict, you need to stop focusing on your pain and recenter yourself and focus on grace. The grace you've received, the blessings you've received, 
and how that grace frees you to relate to the person who is hurting you in a completely different way. So it is the common meeting place of agreement, but it also the power that allows you to move into it. And as it frees your heart, it'll redefine the conflict. As it frees your heart, it will redefine the conflict. And God designed it this way because conflict continually pushes us back to our need for grace. All right, verse 5. I want you to look down at verse 5 because verse 5 speaks to this directly. In verse 5, he says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. See, this changes the goal of the argument. (laughs) This changes the goal of the conflict. The goal is no longer now to win. The goal now is, is no longer to be right, to be justified in your behavior or justified in your opinions or justified in your political assertions. The goal now is to be known as being reasonable. The word reasonable is a a word that means gentleness, humility, patience, approachableness, reasonableness, to be known for being reasonable. Some of you kind of abhor this idea because it feels like weakness to you. Well, if I'm reasonable in a fight, people just walk all over me. If I'm reasonable in a conflict, well, then I'll just be taken advantage of. And what you need to realize is that reasonableness isn't weakness, it's meekness. And those are two very different things. See, weakness is not having enough power to deal with a situation. Meekness is using the appropriate amount of power and holding back. Right? It's like a a, a grown man holding a baby. That's meekness. Using the appropriate amount of strength that you can be gentle. Right? That you can be approachable. That's meekness. That's not weakness. That's strength. Sometimes it takes more strength to hold back than to act. Sometimes it takes more strength to use the appropriate amount of strength, meekness, right? It's not weakness. So he's not saying that we need to become passive in, you know, like like you're not becoming a doormat. It doesn't mean you need to become dispassionate, right? Some of you are like, well, I really believe in my cause. I'm really, really lit up about it. Great. That's awesome. It doesn't need to be, you need to become dispassionate or stupid about important topics. What it does mean is that your goal now is not to be known as being right, <laughs> but as being reasonable. You redefine the win. The win is engaging well with our ideas, not just having the right ideas. See, we love those experiences of the perfect comeback, isn't that exactly pretty much what 95% of Facebook is? It's one little meme that is a comeback to some other little meme that was a comeback to some other little... And finally you're like, I'm really stirred up about this, and this person said the perfect thing with an ugly picture of the person I don't like, and I'll post this, and nobody can respond to it because it's so witty. And then somebody comes back with a better meme that cuts your meme. You're like, no, that was the perfect comeback, right? And it's just this, this battle of, of, like, I have a better one, and I have a... You know, because we're so consumed with being right. We want to be right. We want everyone to know we're right. We want to be justified in our rightness, and that's the wrong goal. We're told to fight for reasonableness and approachableness and humility. That's more important than being right. 
I want to be careful here because I think there's going to be some misunderstanding. Some people may hear me say, as if I'm just saying, hey, you just need to be nice. Steve's telling me to be nice. That's what it means to be reasonable, to be nice. That's not what I'm saying. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is not be nice. Okay? In fact, there's a sin of niceness. When you're just consumed with being nice all the time, so you never actually deal with things the way they're supposed to be dealt with. I'm not talking about being nice. I'm talking about being reasonable, and that's very, very different. There are three natural responses to conflict. You more than likely identify with one more than the other two. We all practice all three, but you probably identify with one more than the other two. So the three responses to conflict. When conflict comes in in your marriage or in your friendships or on Facebook, there are people who move against. The people who move against are going to power up and destroy. There are people who move away. So when conflict comes, their their goal is to self-protect, to withdraw. And then there are people who move toward to appease. Their goal is just to make everybody happy. Their goal is to step in and just say, well, what do I need to say to make you happy to stop this conflict from occurring? Those are all three very normal ways of dealing with conflict, and I want you to know they're all horrible ways to deal with conflict. In fact, yeah, they are in many ways um, the enemy of grace in our lives. So think about it. The people who move against If you're a person who moves against, your first impulse when you hit conflict is to power up. You want to be impressive. You want to be big. You want to be heard. You want to be right. So you're going to come up with the best argument. And for some people, that's physical presence, right? Some guys are just big or or they've learned how to use their physical presence in intimidating ways. Some people raise their voice. Why do they raise their voice? Are you having a hard time hearing me? No. No has nothing to do with that. Raising your voice is a way of silencing someone else. It makes you bigger in the space, auditorially bigger. So the bigger I get with my yelling, the smaller you must become in my presence. It's powering up. Now, for some of you, it's much more subtle and a little more sophisticated than that. You're not a yeller. You're not a big physical person, but, and this is where I identify, you're gifted with words, and so you can come in and string arguments together that are just baffling, and you leave people like, man, I know I'm supposed to argue with this, but I don't know what to say right now. And you're like, you're right, because I'm right right? It's a way of powering up verbally or intellectually. Some people are stats people. They drive me crazy, right? They have 5,000 stats they can quote just like that to silence any argument. It's a way to shock and awe with, with all of this wonderful information. See, these are people that move toward or move against conflict. Their goal is to bring people into submission. Obviously, that is at odds with being gentle and approachable. And you are, when you do that, actually operating out of fear and pride in your attempt to seem big, strong, and powerful. The reality is you're just afraid of appearing weak. You hate it when people don't respect you. It makes you feel so small. You feel so threatened. And you have this deep sense of pride that gets wounded so easily. And so you power up as a way to protect yourself. And some of you are like, that's right. Steve, you are so right. Those power-up people, they're the problem. They're the problem. That's why I just disengage and disappear. 
right? Okay, I've got news for you. You're not any better. You're not any better. <laughs> when you disengage from conflict, when you put up your wall of, of self-protection, when you withdraw your presence, when you withdraw your, your you, you just pull out of the conversation, you put up a wall and you kind of go to your little private place and disappear, you are removing relationship. You're removing affection, you're removing approval, you're removing a sense of love, you're removing a sense of acceptance, you're removing yourself, and in so doing, you are causing just as much damage as the person who moves against. And you're like, well, no, man, this is just a way to reduce conflict and protect my heart. I got to pull back and I just disappear. But what it communicates to the other person is you're not worth enough for me to stick around right now. You're not worth enough for me to stay in this uncomfortable place of conflict, so I'm just going to pull back because I need to protect me. I don't want to be uncomfortable, so I'm just going to disappear for a little while. And it communicates to the other person, I'm going to stay here until you're worthy enough to earn my love again. Until you're good enough for, for me to, to actually come back into your presence and open back up until you've, you've, you've paid enough penance, I'm just going to stay back here. That is not reasonable. That is not gentle. Listen to me. It is emotionally violent. And it is hurtful. The absolute worst combination you can have in a relationship is when you have a move against and a move away. Because those two sinful tendencies feed off each other. When you have somebody who moves against and powers up when they feel insecure, and somebody else who moves away and self-protects when they feel insecure, it fires up greater insecurity in the person who moves against, so they move against in a greater degree, which means they move away in a greater degree. These relationships, if there is not grace, will crumble. They will. Absolutely needs grace to diffuse those sinful heart tendencies. You need to find grace and humility to stay present and not run away. Now, there's another group here, and you guys are like, that's right. That's why y'all should be more like me. I just make people happy. That's what I do. I just make people happy. I find out what they want, and I give them what they want. Right? When there's conflict, I'm just like, well, what do you want? What do you want? How can I just make this go away? So you move toward with the purpose to appease, to pacify, to calm down. You're like, well, what's wrong with that, man? I'm just being nice. I'm just making people happy. I'm just being reasonable and gentle. You know what's wrong with it? You're not being honest. You're a liar. You are lying about your thoughts and your needs, misrepresenting them in order to make somebody else stop being angry. In your need for a lack of conflict, you are willing to lie about who you are. In your need for a lack of conflict, you are willing to lie about what you need. In your need to just pacify, you're willing to misrepresent and put up a false face and a false front to get what you want, which is the absence of conflict. So you make yourself small so other people can be big. Here's the problem, you guys. You're not loving people well when you do that. Do you realize that some conflict is healthy? 
and in fact necessary for people to grow. Conflict itself isn't bad. It's how we deal with it that becomes bad. Conflict is normal. When you diffuse the conflict, when you're constantly trying to appease and calm things down, you are actually acting in a very selfish way that is blocking people from their growth and grace because they need to fight their way through the conflict just like you do to grow in grace. We need to be reasonable, approachable, and gentle. See, this is a very, very different way of dealing with conflict than our natural hard attitude of move against, move away, or move toward with appeasement. What we're talking about now is staying in the conflict with reasonableness, gentleness, and humility. It means staying rooted in grace and inviting people into the presence of grace. It means being honest about who we are and what our needs are. Not not putting up a false front, pretending we're okay when we're not. Pretending that, oh, oh yeah, it wasn't that big. No, like actually being honest and being willing to say, you know what, what you said hurt me, but I still love you. Not, not moving away, but being willing to say, you know what, right now I feel a ton of shame and I so want to just go climb. I just want to get out of here, but I love you enough, man, that I... I feel this shame because you did this thing, you said this thing, and it made me feel rejected. Instead of moving against and overpowering, you make yourself small. You make the purposeful choices. Instead of getting bigger and quoting things and yelling and powering, you make yourself small. Which isn't weak, it's meek. It means that you give space to listen instead of speak. It means that you share your heart And when you're uncomfortable and so driven to just shut this thing down, you shut yourself down. Not not in an unhealthy way, but in a way that says, I'm not going to power up and and bully you right now. I'm going to create space for you. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to ask questions. And I'm going to try to understand and see this conflict through your eyes. See, reasonableness allows us to approach each other in humility. And humility is strength. It's so counterintuitive. Pride makes us feel strong, but the reality is it makes us brittle. Humility is genuine strength because it allows us to come honestly with our needs, honestly with our hurts, honestly with our feelings, even honestly owning our mistakes without having to prove ourselves or defend ourselves or attack anybody and just say, look, I'm a recipient of grace. That's who I am. I'm a person who needs grace, and I've been given grace, and I'm coming to this place of grace to give and receive grace with you. Will you meet me here? See, grace gives you the ability to withstand rejection. See, pride can't do that. When somebody looks at you and they're like not ready to move into that space with you, and they're still angry and they're still withdrawing or they're still attacking, grace allows you to stay in that place. Not weakly, not allowing yourself to be walked on, not pretending to be something you're not, but being honest, but continually inviting. Look, this is who I am. This is what hurt. This is why I'm here. And you're worth enough to me to fight for. Let your reasonables be known to everyone. Listen to me. You're going to win more arguments by being reasonable than being right. 
you're going to protect more relationships by being reasonable than by being right. You're going to be heard by more people who disagree with you by being reasonable than by being right. And the bottom line is you need them, and they need you. I want to close with this. In verses 2 and 3, he doesn't just call Iodia and Syntyche to solve their problem. He doesn't just say, hey, you guys, go off in a corner and solve this thing and come back. He actually calls the entire community to be a community that enters into conflict in a healthy way, right? In verse 3, he says, yes, I ask you, true companion, we don't know who the true companion is, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement. See, the problem isn't just between Yodi and Syntyche, it is between, it is a challenge for the entire community. Now, does that mean we need to be all up in each other's business? Like, hey, I think you guys are in conflict. I need to come in and solve this thing. I need to fix you guys, right? Does it mean, no. It means in the network of our relationships, we're continually calling each other to grace. When we see somebody having an unhealthy response to conflict, pulling away, powering up, appeasing We come alongside them like a true companion and call them to the honesty and the strength and the dignity of grace. Hey, man, I I don't know that you're being fully honest here. See, Yodi and Syntyche have lost the ability to have that conversation. But when somebody else, a true companion, comes in and has that conversation, they're able to hear it in a way that they can't from, from the person they're in conflict with. We need to be true companions. People who come alongside, people who are in conflict, and call them to be their better self. Not not the better version of themselves, but but the version of themselves that grows out of their experience of grace. They're, They're the version of themselves that comes from being loved by God, and as those who are loved by God, they have nothing left to prove and nothing left to defend. God's already done that for them. They can just be humble and honest about their brokenness and their needs, and in that place, Invite people into honest and genuine relationships. See, we need true companions who are going to come alongside us and, and breathe courage into our spines. Because our pride makes us fragile and our fear makes us weak. We need true companions and we need to be true companions. People who come alongside others and help them as they fight for grace and fight to experience more of God's grace in their relationships. When I was on that final stretch of getting up to the summit of Mount Blanca, that stretch I told you about that was right along the ridgeline. What I didn't tell you is that I wasn't alone. On this trip, there was a guy named Matthew. I noticed him on day one. Now, day one, I was feeling stronger, and I was kind of like right in the middle of the pack and, and, and moving right along, and I noticed him. Matthew was always with whoever was at the end. <laughs> he was one of these guys. He, he just kind of hung back and found a way. You know, he was never like, oh, you're slow. I'll walk with you. He was like, he would find a reason. Like, he'd repack his pack, or he'd tie his shoe, or he'd eat a snack, or he'd whatever. But, but he was always paying attention to the people that were at the back. And on day one, I'm like, oh, that's a nice guy. Right? On day two, everybody got summit fever, right? Everybody on this trip was like 10 years, at least 10 years younger than me in marathon runners. I was the slowest, right? And I was hurting on day two. On day one, I noticed Matthew. On day two, man, I sure appreciated Matthew. When I got to that final section, when I was moving up toward the summit, I don't think I would have made it. Matthew was always two to three feet in front of me, just just carefully walking with me, talking with me, helping me to kind of navigate and find the way, telling me, hey, man, up here, there's a patch of ice on this rock. Watch out for this. Like, just, he was just there. 
He wasn't trying to fix me, right? He knew I was like, I told him, like, dude, I'm going to be honest, man. I'm right now, I'm just afraid and I'm ready to go back. He's like, yeah, if you want to. And then he just hung out. And then he would take, you know, so we moved together. Matthew was a true companion. He came alongside me in my time of need, and, and he breathed courage into me. And I wouldn't have made the summit, I'm confident. Wouldn't have made the summit had, had Matthew not been by my side. You guys, you need community. And you need to be community. Which means for some of you, you need to be willing to step out of your, your, your world of, of uh, your low-maintenance, hassle-free life and be willing to actually deal with messy people. You need to be a true friend, a true companion. When somebody's in need and God lets you notice that, you need to be willing to step out of your comfort zone to meet them in that place. And if you are that person, you need to be humble enough to actually admit it and invite people in. For some of you, that's your challenge. You have no problem coming alongside hurting people. The hard part for you is admitting when you're hurting. You need true, true companions, and you need to be a true companion. See, that's the nature of community. We need it. We vitally need it. So we need to invite people in. All right, you guys, let's fight well, because we're going to fight. Let's navigate conflict well, because there will be conflict. Let's be a people of grace modeling for our surrounding community what it means to be people undone by grace and relating to people in that place of humility. All right, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to put a verse up on the screen for you to reflect on and pray about. Uh, Let God speak to your heart. And uh, let me pray for us, and we'll go into a time of response. Father, thank you that, um, man, you are the model of the very thing we're talking about. When we offended you, you didn't pull away and just write us off. You, you didn't power up against us and just destroy us. You, you definitely didn't, you know, coddle up to us and lie to us and appease us. And, man, you told the truth to us, and you spoke that truth in grace. You told us about our need, but in doing so, you did it in a, in a posture of grace. You, you told us our need, and then you showed us your heart. You didn't show up as one who was separate from our pain, but you entered into it so that you could look into our eyes, meet us face to face, so that we wouldn't be strangers in our suffering, and we wouldn't be alone in our fear, and and we wouldn't be exposed in our, our inadequacy. You comfort us, you meet us, and you invite us into something so much better. Spirit, I pray that you will make that invitation so loud and clear that we will have the courage to move into that realm of grace and let it redefine the way we deal with our realms of conflict. You guys, why don't you pray? We'll share communion in just a moment.